series on prayer. And I want to remind you that one of the things we wanted to do with this series is just provide you with um, a template for how to pray for various things going on in our own lives. And so many of us struggle with various things from anxiety, um, sin, um, uh, dryness, spiritual dryness, and all of these things we've been going through in the scriptures. And so today we'll be looking at Psalm 51. Now, if you do not have Psalm 51 marked in your Bibles, why don't you take a moment and go ahead and do it? Because if you haven't uh, needed it up to this point, at, at some point you will. And as we go through it, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. It's, it's um, right up there in terms of all the great prayers in the Bible. Now, this psalm is written by David. And if you all know uh, the life of David, David is remembered by uh, two events in his life. One of the events is a great success in David's life, and that's when he defeated Goliath. But the other one is a great failure, a great moral failure, and that's his adultery with Bathsheba. And that's the backdrop of Psalm 51 today. If you want to read more about that, go to 2 Samuel chapter 11 through 12, and you'll go through and see that. We won't take the time necessarily to go through all of that today, but I just wanted you to know, and it's clear in the subscription on top that that's what we'll be talking about. One of the things that struck me about this psalm is that David tries to cover up his sin, but he is unable to. In God's good mercy to him, he brings Nathan to uncover and expose his sin and expose the guilt. And after he does that, we get this, re this uh, David writes Psalm 51 in response to Nathan saying, thou art the man. And as we read this, I want you to have that in the back of your mind. This is a prayer of repentance. So let's read this as God's people. I will read it for us. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving, your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. And cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation 
and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. For all flesh is as grass and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be taught unto you. Amen and amen. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Our Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for this day. Father, we acknowledge that this is your word, and I know that these are your people. Unite the two together. Father, this prayer has meant so much to so many. And I pray for us today as we go through it. We might learn how beautiful and wonderful it is to repent, even as believers. And I pray for the one that does not know you as Lord and personal Savior in here today. May they see the beauty and wonder in repenting as well and turn to you. And now, Father, bless us. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Uh, several years ago, I um, took my children to the playground. Actually, it was the, the older three to the playground. And typically, when they were that young, I would take them to the playground, and I would bring a book along, and I would tell them, go play, and I would read. At least that was my normal pattern. And it didn't take long, but the same thing plays out every time when uh, kids are on the playground. Invariably, someone is going to hit someone else. Well, you know it is. Uh, it's not, they don't probably meant to do it, but some of them do. You know, there's one or two kids on the playground that, that are pretty violent, but they would hit one of the kids, and then, you know, the kid goes over to his mother, and his mother said, oh, your kid hit my kid, and, you know, Johnny, let's say it's always a Johnny causing problems. And she says, Johnny, say, say sorry. And Johnny says, I'm sorry. And then Johnny, Johnny goes on his way. And then it happens again and again and again and again. And I remember one time this happened quite a bit. And I was uh, sitting there watching these kids over and over saying they're sorry and knowing that they didn't really mean it. They were just doing this to go through the motions. And as I watched this unfold, it dawned on me, there's a big difference between saying I'm sorry and repentance. There's a big difference between saying I'm sorry and saying repentance. Sorry is most concerned we're just acknowledging that a wrong has been done. Or, sorry, is more or less concerned 
with just trying to get out of trouble. Remember Pharaoh, when Pharaoh sinned, um, plague seven and eight, what did he do? He just said, Lord, I sinned, I'm sorry. And, and the Lord forgave him, but his behavior didn't change. He was still the same person. But repentance is different. Repentance is a complete change of heart and mind. I love how the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, the Shorter Catechism says it in, um, in question number 87. They said, what is repentance unto life? Now, now, pause for a moment. If you're taking notes, put that in. Notice that they didn't just say, what is repentance? They said, what is repentance unto life? Why? Because the Westminster, the writers of the Westminster Confession of Faith, and all of us should know this, repentance is life-giving. Saying you're sorry is not. And by the way, um, as parents, we, we need to teach our children how to repent. Now, it's fine. If you've taught your kids how to say you're sorry, I'm not saying you're a bad parent or an evil parent. Please don't hear me say that. I'm just saying that that if you want your children to have a full understanding of Scripture, you need to teach them how to repent. Because as the Westminster Standard rightly says, repentance should be unto life, meaning repentance is life-giving and life-saving. And notice how they describe repentance. The Westminster Confession of Faith says this, Repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, and comprehension of the mercy of God in Christ does with grief and hatred of sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of an endeavor after to new obedience. That's true gospel repentance. It is concerned with the majesty of God, grief over one's sin, hatred of one's sin, and full purpose and obedience hereafter. That's what's represented in Psalm 51. We see true repentance. And so what does true repentance look like? I want us to look at this passage and I want us to see three things that David is asking for. First of all, David is asking for forgiveness. Second of all, David is asking for cleansing. And third of all, David is asking for restoration. If you and I want to truly truly repent, we will need to ask for these three things. So first of all, David asked for forgiveness. Notice in verse 1, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercies. Blot out my transgressions. And then look in verse number 4. He says, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He's asking the Lord for forgiveness. Now, this is the most shocking thing of this passage, that David is asking God for forgiveness. Because you almost want to say, wait a minute, David, he, you forced Bathsheba to commit adultery against you. You, you killed Uriah, her husband. Uh, you brought sadness and shame on their families. You compromised an entire nation. You, you sinned against God in every way possible. And here it is. You are saying against God and God only have you sinned? Really, David? Don't you owe an apology 
to the families of Bathsheba and Uriah? Don't you owe an apology to your generals who you had as party to your sin? Don't you owe an apology to everyone in your kingdom? Well, the answer to that question is no. And that is shocking. In fact, nowhere in scripture do you see David giving an apology to any one of them. Now, I'm not saying he shouldn't apologize. I'm just saying in scripture, it's not there. Instead, David goes to God and he says, God, please forgive me because I've sinned against you. And why does David do that? Because David understands something that you and I and even people in our society don't understand, and it's this, that for something to be sinful or wrong, it has to be based on an objective moral standard, and that objective moral standard is founded on the transcended God. Notice with me, as David says that in verse number four, he says, against you and you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight. What is David saying there? Done what is evil in your sight. Here's what David is saying. Your eyes are the only eyes that matter, God. Your eyes are the only eyes that matter. Most of you that are familiar with the book of Judges know that there's a refrain in the book of Judges over and over again that says, every man did what was right in their own eyes. And it was a way of characterizing the rebellion that was in Israel during that time, that everyone did what was right in their eyes. They did what was right according to them. And that becomes the paradigm by which we understand the debasement of every society when the people in the society just does what is right in their own eyes instead of doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord. And that's what David is saying here. God, I did what was right I did what was wrong in your eyes, and so I come before you acknowledging my sin and asking for forgiveness. Now notice the deeply personal nature of David's sin. It's mentioned in verse number one and two. First of all, David says, blot out my transgression. What does David mean by blot out my transgression? Well, David is saying here the word transgression means to um, describe the breaking of a covenant. David says, God, I broke covenant with you. Pastor Collins, uh, three weeks ago, preached on 2 Samuel chapter 7. And in there, he talked about the Davidic covenant and how David prayed to God a prayer of gratitude because God had blessed him so much. And in the face of all this blessing, David says, God, Blot out my transgressions. Blot out the fact that I broke covenant with you. And it actually goes a lot deeper than that because what David is saying is this. God, as I have committed adultery with Bathsheba, I have committed adultery against you and your covenant because he transgressed his covenant. Notice with me, David also says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. What does the word iniquity mean? It means guilt caused by sin. David says, God, please, I feel guilty of hurt the one you love. That's what iniquity means. It means to hurt someone you deeply love. I remember a pastor friend telling me he was putting his daughter down uh, to sleep one night. And, and as he was putting his daughter down to sleep, his 
um, his daughter wouldn't go to sleep. She said she kept saying, "Daddy, can can I play?" And she was she was di- it was difficult for her to speak. Uh, she was just learning how to talk. And he said, "No, no, you need to go to sleep." And she she said, "Daddy, please, can can we can we play?" And and he said, "No, you need to go down to sleep." And finally, finally, he just said, "No, this is enough." And he spanked her and he put her asleep. And as he was walking away, she said, "Daddy, please, can we can we pray?" And so she was saying, not daddy, can we play, but daddy, can we pray? And my pastor friend said he broke down because he realized that he disciplined his daughter for no reason and sin. And he ended up hurting the one he loved and he felt guilty about that. And that's what David is saying here. Wash me thoroughly of my iniquity because David understands that he sinned against God and he felt incredibly guilty about that notice the last one in verse 2 David says cleanse me from my sin what does sin mean sin is an old English word uh, taken from archery meaning to miss the mark and David is saying here God I didn't do what I'm supposed to do as a king I failed you miserably and these three words captured in this psalm remind us of a glorious truth that unless we understand the magnitude of our sin, there is no way we can truly repent. There was a book written um, in the 12th century, 13th century, called Curdeo's Homo, Why the God-Man. It's one of those books that you read in seminary. Uh, it was written by Anselm of Canterbury, and he's, he's arguing with his interlocutor, and his interlocutor makes the point. He says, why, why do we make such a big deal about sin? You know, why, why isn't it that we could just ask God for forgiveness? Why, why, do we, why did Jesus have to die? Why do we have to make a big deal about sin? And Anselm finally looks at him and says, you have not yet understood the gravity of sin. And that's the point here. David understands the gravity of his sin. And beloved, you might be in here today and you might be wondering, why do us Christians make such a big fuss about forgiveness and the cross and repentance? It's because we understand the nature of sin and what sin does. Sin hurts the very heart of God. You see, you are in covenant with God. God loves you. You are precious in his sight. And when you sin, you break that covenant. God doesn't want you to sin. He loves you dearly. And so that's why David says, God, please, I need your forgiveness. And notice in verse number one, he shows us his pleading when he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. In other words, your hesed love. This is the covenantal love he's asking God for. And he says, blot out my, uh, he says, according to your abundant mercies. This is, this is the goodness of God he's asking for. See how powerful that is. David says, I've sinned so deeply that only the love of God, the grace of God, and the mercies of God can bring me back. Beloved, if you've never been there before, there's coming a time you probably will be there where you've sinned and you've hurt other people deeply. Some of you have already experienced that. You've hurt people deeply. You've sinned deeply. 
You've said things you're not supposed to say. You've done things you're not supposed to do. And the only thing that can reclaim you is the deep, passionate love of God that can set you straight. And so David says, Lord, forgive me. Next, David says, Lord, cleanse me. Cleanse me. Verse number seven. David is asking for purging. And in fact, um, David doesn't desire, David's desire wasn't for people to not be angry with him anymore. His desire was not to be embarrassed by what he did. His desire wasn't to get back into people's good graces. No, David's desire was just to feel clean again. To feel clean again. And note the language in this passage. It's everywhere, actually. If you go back to verse number one, David says, blot out my transgression. What does blot out my transgression mean? He means to wipe it clean. To wipe it clean. Notice he says, wash me thoroughly. It's literally scrub, scrub me clean. Remember when um, one of our daughters were born, was born, um, I had the privilege of, of walking with her and, and, you know, she had all the gunk and goo all over her and they handed her to the charge nurse, whoever that was. And man, that lady went to town. She, she held our daughter like this and she started scrubbing and I, I almost tapped on the window like, hey, that's a human being. You don't, you don't scrub like that. But, but what, was, what was she doing? She was trying to wash off the dirt, the gunk that had accumulated on her. And I mean, she was washing because she was trying to scrub clean. That's what David is saying here. David is saying, God, only you can wash me thoroughly from my sin. Nothing else or no one else. David knows that the inward stain of guilt that he felt could only be purged by the living God of heaven. And notice he says, um, David goes on to say later on in verse number nine and verse, uh, verse number seven, sorry. And uh, he says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. What does he mean by purge me with hyssop? This is powerful language here, but this is redemptive clean cleansing. That's what hyssop meant. It's a redemptive cleansing. If you remember when Jesus was dying on the cross and he said, I thirst, what did they do? They they dipped some sour water in a hyssop plant and put it next to his lips. And what was uh, happening in that moment, that it was beautiful, redemptive, historical imagery to say that only Jesus Christ can cleanse us from our sin. You know, beloved, I don't know what sin that you've committed, but I can tell you, based on the testimony of Scripture, that only Jesus Christ can cleanse us from that sin. Many years back, I taught a class, a theological class at a, at a high school. I taught Greek and Tradidio and various things. It was at a, it was at a um, Christian school. And while I was there, one of the things that we talked about is a beautiful Greek word, uh, elasmus. And an elasmus means two separate things. It, it first of all, has the idea of propitiation that Jesus Christ died to pay the legal demands of our sins. But it also talks about expiation. It refers to the removal 
of shame and guilt as a result of our sin. And I'll never forget after that lecture, I taught that lecture at least four or five times without fail as we were going through that lecture. There would be a young man and a young lady sitting down there with tears flowing from their eyes. And the reason why tears were flowing from their eyes is this. They know intellectually that God had forgiven them of their sins. But nobody ever told them that they could be clean again. And these were young people who had um, had sex before marriage. These were young people who had watched pornography. These were young people who had, uh, had drugs, did drugs. I mean, all number of things. In a Christian school, yes, believe it or not. And here are all these young people. They're being told over and over and over again that Jesus Christ died for their sins. But they were still carrying the guilt and shame from their sin. Beloved, hear me today. Yes, Christ came to die for the legal demands that sin has on you and to deliver you from your sin. But he also came to die for the guilt and shame that comes as a result of sin. We read this in our liturgy, but 1 John 1, 8 and 9 says, If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. That's the propitiation. But also to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. That's the expiation. And notice the word all. It doesn't say some or most or a particular kind. It says all, meaning every type of sin imaginable. That's what David experienced here. He's asking God to cleanse him of every aspect of sin. And if you're in here today carrying the guilt and shame of your past, I'm here to tell you, you don't have to do that anymore. Because not only did Christ die for your sins and the legal demand against you, but he also died to deal with the guilt and shame that comes with sin. So that you could be freed from that as well. No longer do you have to carry that. Now lastly, notice David asked for restoration. In verse number 12, David says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Now David Ask God to restore him of five things. First of all, his joy. He mentions it over and over in this passage. Notice verse number eight. He says, let me hear the joy and gladness. And then in verse number 12, restore unto me the joy of your salvation. What, what does David want back? David just wants back his joy. Notice David doesn't say, I want to be happy. You know there's a difference between joy and happy, happiness. Happiness is based on external circumstances. Joy is an inward disposition of the heart that's settled upon Jesus Christ. And David says, I just want my joy back. You know, nothing steals your joy like sin. Nothing. If, if you want to live, an, uh, if you live um, in an unhappy state, sin. Because sin, sin robs you from your joy. You cannot be sinning and joyous at the same time. It just cannot happen. And David knows that. David say, That's why David says in this passage, Lord, restore back to me my joy because I've lost it. 
I've lost it. I've lost my joy. I have no joy in the things that I'm doing. Notice the second thing that David says he wants back from God, and it's found in verse number 11. He says, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. What does David want back? What does he want God to restore? He says, God, I just want to be close to you again because I've missed that. I've missed being close to you. I've told some of you, uh, Theresa went last week, and, and I was all alone. You could almost hear the violins, right? I was all alone, and I missed her, and I longed for her to come back. And when she came back, I was delighted to be in her presence. Well, that's what David is saying here. He says, Lord, I want to be in your presence again, because I miss that. And I've sinned against you, and I've lost that. Notice what David says in verse number 13. And he's, he says, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. What is David saying? David's saying during that period of time when he sinned, he couldn't teach people like he wanted to. He couldn't teach others God's word because he was steeped in sin. Quickly notice the fourth thing that David says. In verse number 14, he says, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, in verse number 15, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. What is David saying in verse number 14 and 15? Here's what he's saying. He's saying, God, I want to sing again. Remember, David was a musician. David was a musician. But he had lost his enjoyment of singing and playing. Are you that way inside here today? You know, when you are in sin, even things that you're really good at, you don't enjoy. I'll never forget, we lived in Pensacola, and, and something at that time was happening in my life, and I was miserable. And I said, all right, I'm going to go play some disc golf to cheer me up. And so I went on a disc golf course, and wouldn't you know it, it was my best round of disc golf. I think I was like five, uh, you know, minus five or something like that. I, I mean, I was just a rocket on the court. But I didn't enjoy a moment of it. And I can only imagine David, this powerful artist, this beautiful artist, playing and creating beautiful music. And he couldn't enjoy one bit of it because he was in sin. Is that you today? Your joy has been stolen because of sin. Well, in this passage, we see clearly that one way to get it back is through repentance. Notice lastly, David says in verse number 16 through verse number 24, if I could sum up this section well, here's what David is saying. All I want to do is worship God again. That's it. David says, O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifices, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken heart, a broken and contrite spirit, oh, a, bro a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That's what David is saying here. David says, I've offered the sacrifice. And this is often true. Isn't it interesting? You can come to church every Sunday. You can go through the motions. 
But none of it avails you anything if you don't live a life of repentance. If you're not going before the Lord and confessing your sin, if you're not being honest with God inwardly and telling God the things that you are doing. You see, David went into the sanctuary and he offered sacrifices and he was steeped in unconfessed sin, but yet he was faithful. Is that you in here today? You come to church, you sing, you might play instruments, you might do all of the religious acts, but it's of no avail to you because you have not lived a life of repentance before the Lord. That's what David is saying here. But notice, and I'll leave you with this, what David says in verse number 18, because it truly demonstrates to us the power of the gospel in Christ. David says in verse number 18, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls in Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered to your altar. Here's what David is saying in verse number 18. How, how is God good to Zion in such a way to lead Zion to worship in verse number 19? The answer to that question is the person and work of Christ. David is prefiguring Christ here by saying, Lord, do good design. In other words, God, provide the power of your spirit necessary in order for us to repent. I find it interesting that the one person who never needed to repent in his entire life, Jesus Christ, bore the punishment of unrepentant sinners on himself. As scripture reminds us, for our sake, he that knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. We who did need to repent were made alive in Christ so that we might be able to truly repent. As Martin Luther wisely said, the righteousness that God requires and demands, he also provides. And that's the power of these verses that we have in here today. We see the man, David, a Christian, caught up in sin, and yet pouring out his heart that he may be delivered before God. May we all do the same. Father, we thank you so much for the power of your word and for the power of this text, where we see here David pleading with you for repentance. We thank you, Father, that you have called us to live a life of repentance. And I pray that your people may do so. Holy Spirit, do the work in our hearts. It's so easy to come to church and just go through the motions and not ever truly pouring out our hearts to you. May you do the work of grace in us. Help us to ask for forgiveness. Help us to seek cleansing. And may we pray that we might be restored. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Our song of the month <clears throat> is, Lord, You Are Good. I'd like you to think about your life for just a second, your week. I don't know what all you're going through. I don't know how many trials or tribulations the Lord has put into your life this week. 
but are you able to say, Lord, you are good? You can. It's not because of, it's not just because of the evident blessings that we have, that the mercy that the Lord has bestowed upon us this week is because of what we have in front of us. Right? That is the reason that we can confess together the Lord is good, as Dennis has reminded us this morning. So let's all stand together and respond to the preaching of God's word by singing, Lord, you are good. You'll find that on page 8 in your bulletin.